My, uh, my name's Peter. I'm one of the leaders out here. It's good to have you out. You're doing well? Who's doing well? Put your hand up if you're doing well. Okay, I'm going to read you a scripture that tells you how to do well. And this is not even in my notes. Have you got your Bibles there? Can you go to Psalm 34? Psalm 34. Amazing Psalm, Psalm 34. It'll be a good one to memorize. It's got a few verses in it, but uh, amazing one. To, amazing Psalm. Verse... Uh, Psalm 34, starting at verse 4. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Who knows that there's more fear in the world than what people think? Who knows there's probably more fear in you than what you think? It delivered me from all my fears. Listen to this beautiful, beautiful verse. Those who look to Him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Go back to verse 5. Who are the people who look radiant? Those who continually look to God. Those are the people who are radiant. And I, I imagine that as you're sitting there, you can think about people who are radiant, that you know who love Jesus. And, and often they're the ones that people go to talk to all the time. So I, if I go to them, I know I'm going to get some good stuff because they're the ones who are actually looking to God. Uh, I mean, you can think about other uh, passages in, in the Bible where Stephen, for example, is, uh, is getting stoned and it talks about him looking radiant as he's getting stoned. Why? Because he's oriented toward God. So I'm just going to pray that God will help us to uh, orient toward him today and look to him today. God, thank you for uh, your help. Thank you for your presence. Uh, thanks that you give us uh, power and strength to turn to you, even in the times where we don't want to turn to you, even in the times where we don't even like you that much. Sometimes we can get tricked and deceived by things and, uh, and, and we just don't see you truly. And, uh, and you help us to turn to you. So God, I thank you so much for that. And I pray today that you turn uh, the speaker's heart to you today. God, let my face be radiant today because I'm, I'm facing you. God, let all of our faces today get more radiant as we go through today because we orient and we look to you. Amen. I don't do this that often, but I uh, did a bit of an internet search, um, image search, uh, based on the word family. And uh, if you just think about that for a minute, you just go, well, that's just going to be a mixed bag, isn't it? All right, and uh, I'll tell you, it was a mixed bag. Uh, I've got that one, the love of family is life's greatest blessing, to which some of you go, amen, that's true, and others go, I wish. Let's have a family gathering for the remaining family members who still speak to each other. <laughs> some of you go, yeah, that's, that sounds a little bit more like it. It takes a strong man to accept somebody else's children and step up to the plate, another man left on the table. Andy Stanley, there's a bunch of men that, that do that and women do it also. Sorry, that was Ray Johnson. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. It's a good one for parents, isn't it? Some of the most poisonous people come disguised as friends and family. <laughs> so you're laughing because it's true, right? Remember, as far as anyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. I, I did some uh, research uh, in, uh, in the Australian Bureau of Statistics on households. Listen to a couple of these stats. In 2012-13, there were 8.9 million households in Australia. 
just under three quarters were family households. Listen to this, 23% of Australian households in 2012-13 in uh, were lone person households. Isn't that interesting? And 3% were, uh, were group households. Uh, around 2.1 million people in 2012-13 lived alone. 1.1 million females and a million males. Of the 6.7 million families in Australia in 2012-13, 85% were couple families, 14% were one-parent families. I mean, just even think about that. You've got um, just over 900,000 families in 2012-13 that were single-parent families. One-parent families were predominantly lone mother families. 16% of all families with children aged 0 to 17 years uh, were lone mother families. 3% of all families with children aged 0 to 17 were lone father families. Intact families are families, according to the ABS, whose uh, mum and dad, natural mother, mum and dad are still at home. Of families with children aged 0 to 17 years in which the youngest resident child was aged 0 to 4 years, most were intact couple families. 81% of families were intact. But as the age of kids go up, um, of families with children 0 to 17 years in which the youngest child was aged 15 to 17 years, 60% were intact families. So you've got about 40% um, where the youngest child is aged 15 to 17 of families that are, are broken up. This uh, graph is, is a little... I mean, uh, whenever you put a graph like this up, you, uh, you need to think about the story behind the graph or the stories behind the graph. This graph here is um, children with a natural parent living elsewhere and the frequency of visits by age of child. So zero down here, and I think that's 15 to 19 over there. Uh, 15 to 17, sorry. The uh, purple line is visits at least once per fortnight and uh, the red line is visits rarely or never. Okay, so you start over here. 20% um, of kids zero to four rarely or never visit the parent that's not at home anymore and that rises to, uh, to 30% by the time uh, children are 15 to 17. There's, a, there's so many stories behind that. Now, don't, don't hear me having a go at family today. Families are really, really central. I mean, families are just... A a, they're a fascinating reality in our world that draws us in and are so central to who we are on so many levels, yet they're so hurtful sometimes and they're so disordered and dysfunctional sometimes. And I've seen this so many times in, in my uh, career working as a, uh, as a high school teacher in pastoral care is you see um, children drawn toward families that are particularly hurtful to them. And you just kind of go, why, why do you keep going back to that? Because, and I think part of the reason is because that's just the way it's been made to be. Family's meant to be that for us. And it actually locks in so many things about us. It's an entity that has probably, I would say, the most effect on shaping your identity. They're so significant, yet they're so painful sometimes. Isn't that true? Well, I've got good news for you today. Here's the good news. Your natural family is not ultimately the most decisive family on the planet. All right? It just isn't. It's very decisive and it's very important, but it's not the ultimate family that's going on 
on the planet. There's a family that's bigger and more decisive than that. And that is God's family. All right? That's the family that's bigger, more decisive and more significant in terms of the effect and the impact that it can have on you. Answer this question for me. Do you think the world, when you think about the church, does the world need another club? No, they don't, do they? Like, we've got plenty of clubs. Does the world need another business? Does it need the church to be a business? No, it doesn't. The world doesn't need another institution. It doesn't need another entertainment facility. It doesn't need the church to be an institution, an entertainment facility. But I'll tell you what the world could really do with is a good family, couldn't it? And that's, that's what I think God was up to in the very beginning. God is someone who's about family. And he knows as well as you know that his family is really dysfunctional sometimes. And there's people that get really hurt in his family. But you know what? He's still going to bring about his purposes in the midst of his family. His family beats every other family hands down. His family is meant to love better. It's meant to be more loyal. It's meant to be more careful with their words. It's meant to be more supportive. That's what God's family is meant to be. And I'll raise the, the question for you. How on earth is God's church meant to, meant to run? What is it meant to look like? Well, you know what it's meant to look like? It's meant to look like a household. That's why he gave you all those stats on households. And I'll tell you, in, in the church, in Australia, in the world, in the West, there's a real um, pressure upon churches often to turn into a kind of business. And so one of the things that the elders at the project here, the leaders at the project have just been trying to grapple with is how on earth do you get a big group of people like this and run it like a family? How do you do that? It would be easy in a sense just to take business principles and we can learn some things from business, but the world doesn't need another business. It needs a good family. It needs God's family. Well, let's just go back a little way. I want to say to you this morning that there's always been a household. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Look what God says in verse 26 of Genesis 1. He says, let us. You go down to John chapter 1. It actually says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So he's talking about Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit were all kind of kicking in together when it comes to creation right at the very beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that, that was made. Here's the thing. You, you want to be careful not to push it too far, but you know what? In, in God, you've got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and it's a kind of family. That's what it is. And, and what does God's kind of community which is a, bit, a little bit like a family, what, what does it do? Well, it actually creates more families. It creates more communities. Listen to what God's, uh, the community between God, uh, God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, listen to what it's like. Harold Best says this, Even before God chooses to create and before he chooses to reveal himself beyond himself, he eternally pours himself out to his triune self in unending fellowship, ceaseless conversation and immeasurable love unto an infinity of the same. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit like each other. <laughs> and they serve each other all the time. They just give themselves to each other. So if you've got in your heads this idea that God's some kind of megalomaniac and he wants everything to be about him and he's, and he's domineering and he's selfish and self-centered because he always talks about getting glory, at the center of everything in the universe is this 
unceaseless, sorry, this ceaseless community of persons that lives for each other. Oh, there's an energy in that that's incredible. It's no wonder that God creates things that look like community, that look like family, because that's what he is. So what does God do in Genesis chapter 1? The Father, Son and Holy Spirit create a family. Genesis 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis chapter 2, So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. God made a woman. And what does God say to the man and the woman? Have a family. So, so God's in a, in a community that's, that's in a, almost a household, if you wanted to put it that way, and out of that is spawned humanity. And then God says, now you guys go and have families. Like you've just got this, this uh, at the centre of everything in the universe is this beautiful um, relationship, this beautiful, beautiful community that's actually uh, creating more and more communities. And you know the story, right? Adam and Eve didn't want to be in that family anymore. I said, no, well, we're all good. We've got a better idea. We'll just go and do our own thing and we'll step out of your family. And they decided not to do it. And the truth is that every single person here today has done that. Every single person can go back to a time in their lives probably where they could actually say, yeah, there was a time where I didn't want to be in God's family. So what does God do? Well, in Genesis 22, you know what God does? God actually chooses Abraham. And what does he do? He kind of says, you're going to be my family. Israel's going to be my family. Read this with me, Genesis 22:16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. What's God saying? He's saying, Abraham, you and your offspring are my special family. You're my special people. I'd love you to grab your, uh, your Bibles and crack those open again now. I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. If you're... Uh, unfamiliar with the Bible, it's all good, it just works like a, uh, every other book, it's got a contents page at the start, the big numbers are the chapters and the small numbers are the, uh, the verses. You see, God's family that he chose in Abraham turned out to be pretty problematic. Who knows from reading that Bible that God's family in Abraham is pretty dysfunctional? It is, right? So what does God do? Well, he's, he, he's a good dad, right? That's the bottom line. He's a good dad. So what happens when things get messy and dysfunctional in God's family? Well, he doesn't throw his hands up and run away and desert his children, does he? He comes looking for them. That's the kind of dad that he is. He's a good father. Go down to uh, verse 13 in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us 
make peace between us and God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And this is the section that we're up to today. So then, so then, because God has, has raised your spirit from the dead, he's brought life back, sin killed you, you couldn't even respond to God. Because he's actually done that inside of you, he's made you new, here's what you are. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the what? The household of God, a term that Paul's particularly fond of. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in, which, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is what's happened. Let me tell you what Paul, who, uh, who wrote the book of Ephesians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's what he's saying. You were dead, God brought you to life, and when he brought you to life, he recreated you and made you part of his family. You're adopted into his family. Imagine having a good father who never does anything wrong. Imagine that. Let's just, let's just stop there. Imagine having a dad that never does anything wrong. Imagine having a dad that always supports you. He is always measured. He never flies off the handle. He always gives you what you need and he never, ever leaves you. You see, if God has made you alive and he's adopted you into his family and you love Jesus, you're in a family like that. You're like the brothers and sisters can make a real mess of things. True? In the church, the brothers and sisters can make a real mess of things. But you know what the linchpin is in God's family? It's the father. That's what the linchpin is. And you can have confidence, even when it all gets really messy, that it's going to be okay. Why? Because he's a father that never gives up. He's a father that never abandons you. He's a father that will not abandon his church, even when it's messy. The church is full of imperfect people. But with a dad like that, how could you not have hope about where it will end up? <laughs> Amen? We are God's household. That's what Paul's actually saying. So let's just back up a little bit. This may or may not be particularly interesting to you, but I'll just give you a little couple of minutes of history here. All right? Paul's writing in the first century, and he seems pretty keen throughout his writings to highlight the fact that we are the household of God. But what was the household? Like it would make sense to us if we want to understand what Paul's talking about. Let's just back up to the first century and just dip our toes in the water of what the household was back in the first century. You see, what the writers of the New Testament did is they took what was a highly sacred social structure, the household, and they actually deepened it by adding the truth about Jesus to it, by adding the gospel to it. You see, the first Christians were not just friends and fellow citizens, but family. Listen to what Cicero had to say about the household. Cicero was a Roman philosopher, statesman, lawyer, political theorist and Roman constitutionalist. He lived around about uh, 106 to 43 BC, so just before Jesus. This is what Cicero says about 
the uh, household. He says this, What is more sacred, what more inviolably hedged about by every kind of sanctity than the home of every individual citizen? Within its circles are his altars, his hearths, his household gods, his religion, his observance, his ritual. It is a sanctuary so holy in the eyes of all that it were sacrilege to tear an owner therefrom. That's what Cicero said about the household back in the day. In the first century household, the household was actually central. It brought definition and identity to who you were as a person. In the household, there was refuge, protection, identity, security, and a sense of belonging. And Philippians chapter 4, verse 22 actually talks about Caesar having a household. Now, the Caesar back in the day, he was the father of the household. And you know who the household was? His whole empire. That's what his household was. So things were just cashed out in terms of households. P.H. Towner says this about households in the uh, New Testament. The household considered of members of the immediate family and typically extended to include slaves, freedmen, servants and labourers and sometimes even business associates and tenants. In principle, the householder, the Lord, had full authority over the members of the household. He also had obligations and some legal responsibilities to them. But the cohesiveness of the unit depended more upon the sense of loyalty to the household, which stemmed more directly from common economic, social, psychological and religious factors. The household provided members with a sense of security and identity that the larger political and social structures were unable to give. Now, where did... You can answer this one out loud if you want. Where did the new church meet predominantly? In people's houses. Okay. So here's, here's the take-home bit just at this point in time from, from the history that we've just, we've just looked at, right? If you're a family, it makes sense to meet where families meet, in homes. Now, it's good. Sometimes in a, in a gathering this size, we could do some community. But I'll just tell you, from the very beginning of the project, doing community with a group of 200 people has never really been on our agenda because it's really awkward to do it. And it doesn't actually work that well. Often, I mean, I've been to churches where the announcement section goes for about 40 minutes, all right, because they're trying to do community. And they kind of do pretty well, and we could probably warm up a little bit in terms of doing community stuff here, but I'm just saying a group this size is not ideal for actually doing community and doing family. And, and the, uh, the New Testament Christians, they would actually meet in the temple and the synagogue. They met there for teaching, evangelism and debate, um, they did get together in a large, in, in the temple, all right? But do you know what? They spent probably as much time, if not more, in houses because it defined and it identified who God's people were. It was a guide for behaviour and people's roles in the church. If you actually go to um, a bunch of sections in Paul's writings, you know what he actually describes? And he does this in Ephesians chapter 5, I think it is. He actually goes through household codes, yeah, you remember those bits in the scriptures where it says, and fathers, this is what you need to do. And mothers, this is what you need to do. And husbands, you need to do this. And children, you need to do this. You know what that is? That's actually household code kind of instruction. It's like God saying to you, here's how I want my family to operate. Dads, you need to do this. And mums, you need to do this. Kids, you need to do this. Slaves, you need to do this. And it's, it's a well-known reality that Paul's actually going through a household code in the... Uh, in those sections. 
Now, I want to show you something else. Actually, we, we should just look at that last scripture there, Acts 5 verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, the, new, the early Christians did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. Why? Uh, because they were trying to persuade the Jews. They were still kind of connected in there at some level in the temple and the synagogues, but they were family, so we're going to do it in houses. Now, there's obvious... Maybe I should just pause for a moment. And, and I'm not... I don't mean to be uh, confrontational in asking this, but it, it, it's appropriate for us at this point to just go, how much are we operating like a family at the project? How much are you operating like a family? Like is, is, are you meeting up with people in homes? You think about what a functional family might be. Is, is, that, is that what we are? Because you know what? That's what you're in. If, you're, if you love Jesus and you've been saved by Jesus, you're actually in a family. So the question then becomes is how am I operating? Am I operating in line with what reality is or am I operating out of line with what reality is? wasn't that long ago um, that they found, well, they're about, they didn't put a percentage on it, but they're about 90% sure they found Peter's house. Peter the disciple's house, okay? Uh, now, you can go and see it, and this, is, this comes out of a reputable archaeology magazine that's not written by Christians, so if you're kind of going, oh, they're biased on it, they're not biased, right? It's actually written, this, this is a magazine that's run by Jewish people, but they've actually found archaeologists, it's been peer-reviewed, and they've actually just kind of gone with it, we're about 90% sure that we found the disciple Peter's house at Capernaum, all right? So that's the synagogue at Capernaum, and you can see the... Uh, the, uh, what is it, octagonal or hexagonal shape at the end of it is, um, is where Peter's house was underneath that. Now, why is this significant? Well, part of the reason this is significant is, is you just need to know that Peter was a real person and Jesus used to go to Peter's place. So what, what you're actually looking at is a place on the face of this planet where Jesus used to hang out. Like we can actually pinpoint it and just go, yeah, Jesus was actually there. He used to go and hang out at Peter's place at Capernaum. All right, and there's some, some close-ups of the, uh, the archaeological site. That, that's a, an artist kind of rendering of the house. Um, that they found, like, this is just legit, uh, legit. I'll just tell you this, it'll sound really corny, and it may have nothing to do with Peter, but they did find some fishing, a fishing hook in there. Which is just, I mean, it's just interesting, but it's like 2,000 years ago, so anyone could have stuck that sucker in there. That was the house. That was the, uh, roughly uh, the floor plan of the house. Um, all right. So uh, the New Testament people, they met in houses. I mean, you imagine just gathering together in here. I mean, there were was, there was some bigger houses that might have been able to fit 100 people in, but probably not too many people would have, would have had a house big enough for all of us. Why were they meeting there? Because they were a family. They were God's household. That's what you did. You, you, you met in a place that reflected who you were. Just recapping. Why meet in a house? Because God is Father. Those who are saved by Jesus are God's children. The Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn of the family and our brother. So, it, like, it's just logical. Like, if, if that's... 
the truth about who we are, then you do family. So you've got to find a way to do family. Now, some of you are in community groups in the project. And this is not a community group plug. This is a family community plug. So there's some people in the project who have come up to me or, or have heard people say, uh, we don't really want to be in a community group. And I go, that's okay. Like, no one's going to force you to be in a community group. But let me tell you something. A community group is a really easy way to kick a bunch of the community family goals that the Bible talks about. Now, you can do it outside of a community group, but you've actually got to work really hard to do that. And I think God's call upon us, God, God's call upon you, God's call upon me, is like, let's really press in so that we are family and we're operating like a good family. Let's make sure that we are worshipping in a place that defines who we are. See, Matt was exactly right, you know. I mean, another analogy you could use instead of the car racing analogy is, uh, is a sports analogy. You know, what's, what's church? Well, church on a Sunday morning is a half-time G up by the coach, <laughs> isn't it? It's like you come in, it's just like, what were we doing out in that half? <laughs> or, that, that's going great, let's keep doing that. You know, it's like, let's get together, let's hear the coach, Jesus himself, just kind of say to us, here's where we need to go. This is what we need to do. Get us refocused and then get us back out on the field. You see, the project is God's household. And we can get together on Sunday morning, but we're actually part of God's family. And part of being in God's family means that we need to think about how we can serve one another, how we can care for one another. I mean, what's the church equivalent of unpacking the dishwasher? <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? Okay, and and I'm, not, I'm not meaning to be rude to you, right? But if, if we're a family, what are you doing to chip in? What are you doing? Or is someone else cleaning up after you? Is someone else doing stuff that, that you could be chipping in and doing? Like, it, you with me? Like, if, if, if all you do is you come to church and you never chip in, like, is anyone here saying, like, if you're, if you're four kids, like, we've got four boys, they, they all get to 18 and, and, you know, in 18 years they've never unpacked the dishwasher or done anything to help around the house? Is that... Would you say that's a normal family? Look, it's not, is it? It's like, what do we do? What do you do in your family? Well, you chip in. And, and you do your bit. And one person doesn't have to do anything. Sorry, one person doesn't have to do everything. We all kind of chip in and we do stuff to serve each other and to help each other. What is the responsibility that God the Father wants you to undertake in his part of the family here at the project? That's a good question, isn't it? Do you know what that is? Now, I, the leaders of the church here, we're not going to go around and tell everyone what those jobs are, but I reckon you need to be asking God what that is. Maybe sometimes we'll recognise something in someone and we'll go, we'll go up to them and we'll say, hey, we recognise you've got a real gift and it really helps people. Maybe you want to think about using that a bit more. We're not going to lob something on someone, but we think it's like, okay, you're the, we're all the kids. Let's find out from Dad what he wants us to do. Because he'll have a job for you to do. He'll have something that he wants you to throw in. He'll have some way that he wants you to contribute to the identity, the belonging, the protection that actually happens in the church here. What am I saying? 
I'm saying that if you're not, if you just don't feel like there's a whole lot of family happening, push in. That's what I'm saying, push in. Don't, don't be passive about it. Ask the Father. Where would he have you push in? Where would he have you chip in? Where would he have you serve other people? All right, let's finish with this. I'm going to play a word association game. Ready for this? You know how this works? I say a word and all of you have got to say out loud the first word that comes into your mind. Is everyone cool with this? And you need to say it loud enough so the person next to you can hear. Are you ready? <laughs> some of you going, I don't know whether I am. Well, I'll give you some easy ones to get you started. Here's the first one, you ready? This is a, this is a test drive. Pen. Yeah, good. See, you guys are good. Some of you going, okay, I'm okay. He's, he's not going to get too messy. Potato. Otter. School. Church. All right. I, I haven't got a clue what anyone's saying. This is waiting for some Holy Spirit kind of interpretation of what's going on here. But let's switch it around and uh, play a word disassociation game. All right. So now, instead of thinking of the first thing that comes to mind, you have to think of the thing that's the furthest removed from what I'm going to say and say that. And you've got like a second. So don't, some of you are going to sit there for 30 seconds going, I think I've got it, I've got it. Are you ready? Cat. <laughs> Remember the furthest thing away, the, the, the furthest opposite. Donald Trump. <laughs> Peter Sondergaard, thank you. That's lovely. Book. Oh, you're a bit slow on that. Are you all right? Book. Space shuttle. It's, you're turning into a rabble, all right? That's what's happening. Here's the last one, individualism. What if, what if everyone at that point said church? What if the opposite extreme from individualism wasn't whatever we said, but it was actually church. You want to be part of that one, wouldn't you? If that's what our perception was, you want to be part of that one. And that's exactly what Paul's done, you know. He's, he's just started at Ephesians chapter 2 and he's gone through and he's talked about you and he's talked about how God has brought life to you and then he kicks straight in in the last couple of weeks. He's kicked straight into talking not just about you anymore, but he's talking about community. And he's talking about the people that you're part of. You are God's household. You're his family. So when we act like it, how great is that? Isn't it? When we don't, God help us to act like it. And he will. He will. Why don't you pray with me and then we're just going to transition to the baptisms. God, you are, you are a good father. And uh, for some of us, God, um, you're the furthest thing away from what 
their experience of fatherhood is. But God, that doesn't seem to stop you. You don't change your title so that you get away from brand damage. But you actually move toward us and you keep moving toward us and you keep helping us and you keep overseeing your family and you keep working in your family to show what a real father is like. So God, I pray for all of the dads here, including myself. God, would you help us to learn what it's like to be a good dad from you? The one who never gives up, the one who never flies off the handle, the loyal one, the one who is always with his children. And God, as, as, we, as we think and just ponder what it's like to be a member of your household, God, would you strengthen our engagement with it? Would you help us to press into it, God, not away from it? God, would you show us what our roles are, our responsibilities are in your little part of your family here? And God, as you do that, uh, God, I pray that you just stir up more and more our love for each other and that as people see our love for each other, people would be one to you and would be persuaded about you and the truth of what you've done for us and how you've saved us and how you've transformed our lives. God, let there be more love in this place than people see anywhere. God, let it be a better family than anyone else, that, that, that anyone can see anywhere else. God, please help us. We're going to need you to oversee all of that. We're going to need you to stay in charge. We're going to need you to continue being the father that you are so that we can actually live out the kind of family that you've called us to live out. Amen.